Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James chapter 1. And the guys have some Bibles, so as they make their way down the aisle, if you need one, get their attention, they'll give you one. And when I say give, I mean that, it's a gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of Scripture, and so consider that our gift to you. It's marked for you, so you can turn straight to James chapter 1. When I was in high school, one of my most dreaded experiences was to hear the teacher at the beginning of the class hour say, take out a half sheet of paper. What it meant was he was going to give a pop quiz. That is, a pop quiz is one you hadn't, he hadn't bothered to tell you about in advance. When I attended seminary, I was relieved to learn that the professors there did not give pop quizzes. But did you know that God does? God gives pop quizzes. And they come up without warning. And yet, unlike in academia, where the objective is to test knowledge, God gives these pop quizzes in order to test our faith. In fact, verse 3 of James chapter 1 says, The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now I remind you as we look at that verse that faith is tested as we will see by God. I remind you that in the New Testament the word for faith is the same word for belief. So you could actually substitute there the testing of your belief or the testing of what you believe develops perseverance. You see, Christian faith, Christian belief, is more than mere profession. I profess, I say, I believe certain things. What we believe governs the way we live. And therefore, many of us are familiar with James' famous words in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. For he asks, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, belief, but he has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So what we believe, our faith proves that it's alive by what it does. Faith works. Belief behaves. The reality of a genuine, authentic, living faith is demonstrated by its reaction to various circumstances that God allows to come into our lives, those pop quizzes I was talking about. And faith is such an important matter for the child of God that it needs to be put to the test. And it's put to the test for two reasons. One, in order to prove that it is indeed genuine, real, authentic, not mere profession. And secondly, it's tested in order to make it stronger. And so God gives these pop quizzes. He tests what we believe in order to ascertain, for us to have proven to us 
that what we claim to believe is real and genuine, but also to make it stronger. And so over the next few months, we're going to be going through the five chapters of the book of James. And I've titled the series, Real Faith. Is what we believe genuine, authentic, real? Now as we begin this series through the book of James today, I'd like to take a little bit of time to tell you who James is. Since the book is named after him, and since in the very first verse, he identifies himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So who is this James who is writing this powerful book? Well, there were two James, two men named James, who were part of the twelve, a band of twelve apostles. James, the son of Alphaeus, and then there was James, the son of Zebedee, who's the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. So you have these two guys named James, both of them part of the apostolic band, and neither of them is this James. This James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. You say Jesus had brothers? Now notice I say half-brother because Jesus' mother is Mary, as are these people we're going to identify in just a bit. But they don't share the same earthly father, of course, because Jesus was born without the intervention of Joseph. So this James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn to Mary, and Joseph and Mary subsequently had other children. Now, how do I know this? Well, because the Bible identifies James as simply James, the Lord's brother. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus had siblings, those born to Joseph and Mary after his miraculous birth. The Bible tells us this, that on one occasion Jesus went to his hometown, Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. He began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. And they said, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Now remember, he's in his hometown. He's in Nazareth where, where people know him and they know his family. And so then they go on to say this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And isn't this guy the brother of James and Joseph? and Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? So who is this James that wrote this book that bears his name? He is the, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grew up in his home. And yet, having grown up in his home, the Bible tells us that as Jesus began his earthly ministry in earnest at about the age of 30, the Bible says this, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, just pause there for a moment. I have sometimes thought about what it would be like to be in the same home as the Lord Jesus. And there are some comical things that you can think about. Never makes a mistake. You know, certainly never sinned. But Jesus apparently did not begin to reveal himself completely for who he is to his family until he began his ministry in earnest at the age of 30. 
John chapter 2 says he performed his first miracle at a wedding in a town called Cana. And so up until this time, even his family did not believe that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And yet we find James and Mary and others of Jesus' family gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1. The Bible says this, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jesus' family had come to believe in him. By the end of his earthly ministry, they had come to see that he is indeed the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. Now what had happened to James such that he had now come to believe? Well, Jesus began this ministry of two and a half years in earnest at the age of 30. They began to see what he had come to do. But he saw one miracle in particular that undoubtedly had a profound effect on him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the 58 verses of that chapter are known to many of us as the resurrection chapter. It's all about the resurrection of the Lord and in turn then our promised resurrection as well. And here's what it says in the resurrection chapter, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Jesus makes a special appearance to his half-brother, James. And this undoubtedly had a transformative effect on this one who had grown up with Jesus in Nazareth such that he comes to believe. And we find him, after now this resurrection, gathered with the followers of Jesus in the upper room in Jerusalem, awaiting the promised Holy Spirit to begin the mission that Jesus has sent them to complete. And so committed did this James become to the Lord Jesus, his half-brother, but more than that, his Lord and his God, that he became a leader in the early church. We see him, his name showing up in the book of Acts. One such place is in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, there is a meeting of the, the, belie the early believers and representatives from the various churches. And they met in Jerusalem, where the first church had been established on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it's interesting to see who plays the most prominent role in this meeting. Acts 15 tells us this, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. And then he gives his advice on what ought to be done about the issue that they were discussing, and he says, it is my judgment that we should. And what he says, if you were to read Acts chapter 15, and I encourage you to, to do that, he says what we should do is send a letter to our brothers and sisters in the various churches and describe there how we should handle the issue at hand. And so the Bible tells us they all agreed to that, and they sent a letter that starts this way, according to Acts 15. It starts with the word, greetings. Now, why does that matter? If you look at James chapter 1 and verse 1, the last word in that verse is greetings. 
Now, the word greeting, English word greeting, is used a number of times in our New Testament, but there are only two times that the Greek word that's translated greetings here is used. Acts 15 and here. The half-brother of Jesus, who grew up with him in the same home, now in chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book that he wrote, designates himself as the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Just ponder the greatness of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, that those who knew him and knew him best recognized him as their Lord and their God and their Messiah. A servant, a doulos, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, says James. And he says, I am writing this letter, verse 1, to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. It's kind of a long way of saying, I'm writing this to Jewish Christians. Christians, followers of Jesus, who come from Jewish background, as did, of course, Jesus and James and all of the first followers of the Lord. And he says they are scattered among the nations. If you were to read in the book of Acts, the, the mission that Jesus gave to his church and the church both began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus has said to them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, I want you to begin in Jerusalem, but then I want my message to spread to the outer regions, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You all remember that. So it starts in Jerusalem and it stays in Jerusalem. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why it's staying in Jerusalem, why it is that we don't have recorded more people going from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria. It may be that they got comfortable. But the Bible does not record that they move, and so when we, hear this, when we don't move as God instructs, God can move us. And Acts chapter 7 tells us of an event, a pivotal event, in the history of the early church, when Stephen became the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 7, and then the end of Acts chapter 7, beginning of Acts chapter 8, tells us that the church was then scattered from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And so now James is writing, years later, after this persecution and after the scattering, to those of Jewish ancestry who have become followers of Jesus who are now scattered among the nations. This is a, a letter that's being sent to people who are all over the place. And so it does not have a specific address like many of the letters in our New Testament. Paul to the church in churches in Galatia or the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi. It is simply to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. It's sent to Jews who came to know Jesus and are now involved in his mission in the regions beyond Jerusalem. And James has undoubtedly kept in contact with many of them after they've been scattered. And his pastoral heart, now remember, he's their first pastor, many of them, in that first church in Jerusalem. And so his, his pastoral heart moves him to address the things that he knows about or he anticipates they'll be facing. And so he sends this letter, giving them instructions on various ways that their belief 
can be tested, perhaps is being tested, and will be tested. And so at the end of chapter 1, he says, what we claim to believe is tested by our response to the Word of God. We will see that in the weeks ahead. And at the beginning of chapter 2, faith is tested by its treatment of other people. And also in chapter 2, it's tested by its production of good works. In chapter 3, by the demonstration of self-control, especially in the way that we use our tongue. In chapters 4 and 5, what we claim to believe is tested by our reaction to worldliness in the forms of selfish strife and arrogance and injustice. And then finally, at the end of the letter, what we claim to believe is tested by our resort to prayer. And here at the outset, we're given instruction regarding testing this way. Testing what we believe in adverse, difficult circumstances. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. We are going to look together at what God tells us about the testing of what we believe in the form of difficult circumstances. We need God's aid as we do. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this letter from your servant James. We thank you for the unique perspective that he is able to bring to the Lord Jesus, for his manifest, his evident zeal in following his Lord and his God and his half-brother in the flesh. Lord, as we look at what he has instructed over these next weeks together, help us to come with open hearts and attentive minds so that we can leave this series better equipped and more determined to serve the Lord Jesus in the way we live, in whose name we pray, amen. Now before we look at how we are to respond to trials, let's make sure we understand what's meant by A trial in verse 2. The word that's translated trial refers to external circumstances that are unwanted. Okay? A trial is stuff that's going on in my life that I wish wasn't going on in my life. It's, It's unwanted circumstances in my life. Now, a trial is, by definition, a difficult circumstance and therefore unwanted. And because it's difficult, it is possible for us to react to it improperly, even sinfully. I'm in the heat, I'm in the difficulty, you're in the heat and the difficulty of whatever the circumstance, the trial is, and then we react to that pop quiz that God has allowed in our lives. And we can react improperly, we can react sinfully. In fact, if you go down to verses 13 and 14, The same Greek word that's translated trial in verse 2 is translated several times in verses 13 and 14 as tempted or a temptation. And so verse 2 says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Then verse 13 says, when tempted or when tried. No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. 
And so in verse 2, it's translated trial. Same word in verses 13 and 14 as tempted or temptation. Now, why is that? It's simply to emphasize that indeed God is sovereign over the pop quizzes, the circumstances, unwanted, difficult circumstances He allows in our lives. He's sovereign over all of that. But His intention is what we're going to see in verses 2 through 8. It is not, it is never, for us to respond sinfully. So when is it that a trial that God intends to make us better, when does that become a temptation that leads to sin? It's when we fail to respond to it as we are instructed in this passage. Then we are tempted to grumble and complain and otherwise disobey. So hear this, dear friends. The same unwanted, difficult circumstance that God brings to make us better can in the end be a blessing to one man or woman and a curse to another same circumstance. And the difference is how we choose to respond. And so this topic of how I respond, how you respond to difficult, unwanted circumstances that God brings as these pop quizzes into our lives, this ought to be important for you. Here's why. Because you all have heard me say many times over the years that I don't know the deal with you right now, But I know this, you're in one of three circumstances. One of three. You are either in a trial, you've just come out of a trial, or in good southern English, you're fixing to go into a trial. You're either in one, you've just emerged from one, or you're getting ready to go into one. Now, how do I know that? (laughs) Because we live in a fallen world, and man is born to trouble, said Job, as surely as sparks fly upward. And so we have these. There is no choice. We live in a fallen world, and God gives these pop quizzes to test what we believe. And so take a look at your outline that's inserted in your program. I say there that we then must respond to trials. You see, we must respond to them because they're going to be there. They are there. It's part of life in a fallen world. So we are going to respond. The only question is, how are we going to respond? We must respond to trials. These unwanted circumstances that God brings as pop quizzes to test what we truly believe, we must respond to them because they are three things. They are, first of all, unavoidable. Unavoidable. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers. And then it says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice this. James could have said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, if you face trials. But on purpose, he doesn't say if. It's not if, it's what? It's, it's when. Because it is inevitable that you will. Trials in a fallen world are unavoidable. So we must respond to them The question is, how are we going to respond to them? Because they're unavoidable, but secondly, because they are indeed pop quizzes, pop tests. They're unexpected. Unavoidable and unexpected. Because verse 2 says, consider it pure joy whenever you, and then this, here's the word, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now that word, 
face is used elsewhere in your New Testament. One such place is Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 30. In Luke 10, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. But you remember Jesus starts that story by talking about a man who was traveling, and then in verse 30 of Luke 10, he says he he fell among thieves. That word fell among thieves is the same word as facing trials. So you could translate it whenever you fall into trials. So the picture is you're going along through life and they just come at you. They're just there. It's life in a fallen world. They're unexpected. You don't have opportunity often, most times, to prepare for the specific difficult circumstance. And so we must respond to trials because they are unavoidable. It's when, not if. They are unexpected. We fall into them. And thirdly, they're unlimited in their variety. Unlimited. Verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. All shapes and sizes. We face trials of all sorts. Job lost his wealth his reputation, his family. Paul had his thorn in the flesh, he called it, in 2 Corinthians 12. It might be physical illness. It might be marital difficulties, employment problems. We face these, and they are of all sorts and types, of many kinds. Now, friends, Since we do not control the circumstances that come our way, we need to ask ourselves, who does? Do you believe that your God does? You see, when this thing comes, when those things come, in unlimited variety, what's being tested is what I believe. Do you believe God controls those things? Why do we act as though we can control them? We sometimes say, perhaps not in these precise words, but something to the effect, you know, if you'll just give me a couple months, I'll have it together. (laughs) Well, good luck with that. Because then there'll be something else. You know, if it weren't just for this fill-in-the-blank, some circumstance, then I could serve God. And you know, friends, in America, as Christians, the truth of the matter is, we don't really know what difficulty is. That's true for me. As I read the Word of God, as I read the reports of what brothers and sisters are going through in other parts of God's world right now, do I really know difficulty? (laughs) And yet we act as though. Our lives are so miserable and so trouble-filled We are indeed tested, but not tested in any way like we read in the New Testament. And the question then is this, if we can't be faithful to God now, what makes us think we will be faithful to Him later when more severe trial comes? If I say, if I could only have this thing fixed, and the thing pales in comparison to what we read in Scripture and see in the lives of others. So how is it that we're to respond to trials that God brings in order to make us better? Respond we must and respond we will 
But how should we do that? And I say in your outline, we can respond. We must respond, number one, and we can respond to trials with joy. Verse 2 says, consider it pure joy. You say, but I thought you said that a trial is unwanted and it's difficult. And I did, and it is. So how is it that I'm supposed to respond to it with joy? Well, that word consider has to do with the way we view our circumstances. It means that we make a conscious decision to respond in a particular way. Consider. If I say consider this, it means think about this. Think about it this way. So consider now these difficult circumstances that God brings to test what you believe. Think about them in a way that produces joy. Now joy does not mean, absolutely does not mean, that the circumstance, this unwanted difficulty, is pleasurable. Wouldn't be a trial then. It's not pleasurable. In fact, the very nature of a trial is that it's difficult. It's what lay beyond the circumstance that gives rise to the joy. Although our circumstances may not be good, we can have joy because we know good will come out of that circumstance. You all hear that. The circumstance is not good. But I can have joy because I know good will come out of that circumstance. But do I believe that? That's what's being tested. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we, we have joy not because of the trial, but because of what will become of the trial. And so joy can be defined. Here's a working definition of joy. Joy is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. Joy is an abiding sense of delight that God's at work in my life. The circumstances may be lousy, but God's at work in my life. And I know that and can know that every moment of every day. You know something about this difficult circumstance. You know a bunch of stuff about this difficult circumstance that God has told you in His Word. And one of them is found in verse 3. Here's how you can do what verse 2 says. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Here's why, verse 3, because you know. You can do this because of what you know and claim to believe. That God, our sovereign God, allows these into our lives to test our faith in order to develop something good. Perseverance. The trial is designed to test what we believe. And just as the refinement of gold reveals impurities as well as the genuineness of metal, trials test the metal of what we claim to believe. And so, friends, do you believe that God is doing something to you or doing something for you? If we're angry with God or we are bitter, it indicates we do not trust Him. 
And in a group this size, without doubt, there are people who came into this room who are angry and bitter. Do you believe God is in control of the circumstances? Well, if we respond with worry, we do not trust God. Do we believe that God is not only sovereign in His control, that God has the ability to do whatever He wants and bring whatever He wants? Do we believe that? Yeah. But do we also believe in the midst of this difficulty that He is good? If we respond with anything other than joy at the prospect of what God is going to accomplish, we show that we do not believe that He is good. In sum, do we really believe that God is working all things together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose? Romans 8.28 God is the author of our circumstances, but He is not the author of our sin. Or to put it another way, God has placed you and me in a certain place. And how we handle it is a choice each of us has to make. Let me give you a quote from Charles Swindoll. Some of you know Charles Swindoll. Uh, radio preacher, written a bunch of books, been a pastor, seminary president. And years ago, when I was, I had a real job, and I was working in the workaday world, I was in this office, and I saw pinned up on one of the bulletin boards, uh, this eight and a half by 11 sheet, with these helpful words on it, that uh, at the bottom said, Charles Swindoll. And so I made a copy of that, and I've kept it around. And here's what Swindoll said. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failure, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We not, cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced, he says, that life is 10% what happens to me, and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Now you think about that circumstance that God has allowed into your life to make you better. And ask yourself, how do you consider it? How do you think about it? And if every day you were to awake and say, Lord God, I believe. That's what's being tested. What do I believe? And Lord God, I believe that you have placed me here. And I believe that you are going to work good out of this difficulty. And so, Lord, I commit this to you, and I commit my attitude to you in it. What kind of difference, profound difference would that make in that marriage? In that relationship at work? In the way you face that 
prognosis, that financial difficulty. When I was a kid, grew up in Sunday school, thanks be to the Lord, my family took me to church every Sunday. My dad was a pastor. So I had the opportunity to be in Sunday school room. Like many of you, I can still picture the room, picture the teachers, the stuff that was on the wall. One of the things that was on the wall, you've heard me talk about in one of my classes as a kid, was a poster that looked like the then-current Coca-Cola ad. And the ad for Coke back then was, Things Go Better With Coke. Anybody old enough to remember that? So it looked just like the Coke ad, same colors and design, but it said, Things Go Better With Jesus. And I thought about that years later. And the truth is, with Jesus... The things don't necessarily change. As a matter of fact, you know, we tell people, you become a Christian, everything will be great. Well, that's a big fat lie, right? You become a Christian, things may get worse. True? Your family may now hate you because you're a follower of Jesus. It may get worse. It's not that things go better with Jesus, but hear this, friend. Our view of things is radically changed. Because those things are in the control of not only a sovereign, but a good God. And if I believe that, it alters my perspective, it alters my attitude, it alters the way I think about it. Now one final point on our attitude in trial. We have to prepare for the test. You say, but it's a pop quiz. <laughs> True. But you can prepare now, asking yourself, do I really believe this? In every smaller circumstance you have now, you can prepare for the unknown that may happen next week, next year, five years, ten years from now. Every day asking yourself, do I really believe this? Am I demonstrating in the way I behave that I truly believe this? When I took tests in high school, I went to a Christian high school, and later in seminary, the instructor, instructors would often pray before the exam. And they would pray something like this, Lord, reward these students according to their preparation. And I'm thinking, that is a really lousy prayer. I do not want to be rewarded. But the truth is, that's the way it goes. As we endure the trial, we will endure the trial to the extent that we have saturated ourselves with the promises of God and have determined to believe those every moment of every day. You can respond to trials with joy. Now, there are a couple other ways that you can respond as well, and they're in your outline with blanks. They're going to remain blank until next week because I think I should quit. And I will pick it up there next week. We're going to bow before the Lord, and as we do, we're going to do two things. One, I'm going to invite anybody who doesn't know James' half-brother, the Lord Jesus. Anybody who doesn't know him in a personal way, I'm going to invite you to trust him as your Savior, as your Lord. You see, this perspective that James has and he is encouraging upon his readers and upon us, is not natural. It's supernatural. The only way you can have this kind of radically changed perspective is that you have been radically changed yourself. 
And that happens when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? It means to recognize that he paid the penalty for all of your sin, past, present, and future. To recognize that Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. He died the death that we deserve, and he did that in our place. And so you come to Jesus by realizing that you are a sinner. It's manifest in your life and my life every moment of every day. Recognize that Christ lived for you and died for you on the cross and repent of your sin. Lord, I recognize, perhaps for the first time, I'm going in the wrong direction. I want to follow you. I need to be radically changed from the inside out. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow, you pray from your heart to God. No magic formula, simply acknowledging your sin, your need of Him as your Savior, and your desire to follow Him with your life. Those of us who have done that, and who He is changing from the inside out, Let's bow before the Lord and confess our sin of not believing Him. And thank Him that despite our weakness, despite our unbelief, despite our unfaithfulness, He remains faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that Your Word speaks to us where we are. And we are in a fallen world filled with difficulty, much of it foisted upon it, on us, some of it created by us. But we live in the midst of trials, difficult circumstances, unwanted. Often circumstances that we cannot change. We can't change the circumstance, but oh Lord, your Holy Spirit gives us the desire and the ability to change the way we look at that. Because we choose to believe what you have promised about yourself, about us, about what you're seeking to accomplish in the midst of this difficult thing, whatever it is. And Lord, I don't believe as I ought. And we don't believe as we ought. And so we ask you, Lord, to forgive us. I pray that brothers and sisters right now in the midst of that difficulty, some of them difficulty that they have carried around for years and have refused to believe you in the midst of that thing, I pray that they are confessing that to you, giving that to you, and that their perspective is being changed even now. I pray for any who came into this room and don't know the Lord Jesus, God the Son, who showed his love for us by what he has done for us in the past and what he is doing for us in the present, instructing us in words from books like the book of James to tell us the way we ought to see things and the way we ought to respond to things. And he knows our weakness and he knows we can't do it ourselves. And so he offers us his Holy Spirit as we come to him in faith. I pray that there are some who are receiving the Lord Jesus for the first time as Lord and Savior. Lord, glorify yourself in our lives, including the trials that you allow in order to make us better. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.